Welcome into Rinse and Repeat History. It's the podcast where we look at the parts of history that repeat themselves or rhyme and see what lessons we can take from them. After all, if you don't learn from the mistakes of history, you're bound to repeat them. I am your host, Palmer Ferguson. Let's get started. Welcome into the third episode of the Welcome into the third episode of Rinse and Repeat History, Season 1, The Pell Riders, where we talk about pandemic outbreaks across history. Uh, Today, we're going to be talking to Amanda Whistler, who is a bit of an expert on the Spanish influenza. She is a PhD candidate at Arizona State University in anthropology and bioarchaeology. She was great to talk to. Hope you guys enjoy the show. Amanda, welcome to the show. Hello, Palmer. How are you? I'm doing good. Thank you for asking. How about you? I am doing fine, as well as can be expected right now. That's understandable. Yep. Mm-hmm. I can uh, I can relate to that. So why don't we just go ahead and jump right in. Spanish flu, what is the time frame that we're working with? So uh, this pandemic, and I feel like I should say that, um, so there's a, I've been talking to some other people in my field who study this, and we're trying to move away from saying the Spanish flu pandemic. We're trying to just say like 1918 pandemic because, you know, with the whole, quote, Chinese virus thing, we're sort of trying to not let that continue. So I'm going to refer to it as the 1918 pandemic, but it's the same thing. The time frame of this pandemic really varied depending on where you were in the world. So, you know, people weren't quite as easily connected as we are today. And so most the the sort of main wave of the pandemic that people think about happened between sort of fall of 1918 to sort of the end of 1918. It's really when the worst of it happened. About um, September to November of 1918 is when things got really serious. Okay, and so we're 1918, the war, World War I is going on. Can you give us, can you give us a brief overview of like the cultural and political climate of the time? Yeah, so I mean, as you said, we were deep in World War One. Um, you know, in the United States, this was, uh, you know, segregation was still going on in the U.S. If you had to travel long distance, you really had to go by train or ship or even, you know, sometimes by airships or zeppelins. Early motor vehicles were around, but a lot of people still traveled by, you know, horse and carriage. And to give people other frame of reference, you know, the, the jazz singer sort of, considered to be the first talkie, didn't come out until almost 10 years later. So a lot of life was really different back then, in 1918. Now, the origins are kind of cloudy, uh, and we'll get to that, but how did, or do we know, to the best of our knowledge, the great influenza of 1918 begin? That's a great question, and yeah, it is, we really, there are many different hypotheses about where it came from, where it started, Um, And we really don't know. Um, We know that it did not start in Spain. So it became known as the Spanish influenza because of, at the time, like we said, World War I was in progress. And so, you know, censorship and keeping secrets was really important at the time, not only to help with the the war effort, but to, you know, keep morale up. So there were uh, cases of influenza in the U.S. before they happened in Spain, but people weren't really allowed to talk about it. But Spain was neutral at that time, and so the, fr- the press was free to report on it. And I also read that uh, the Spanish king at the time contracted 
this virus. And so, you know, it was like the most famous world leader at the time to get sick. And so people were talking about that kind of like if we called it, you know, the English disease because Boris Johnson got uh, the coronavirus. So the majority of researchers, I think, agree that the pandemic originally started um, in actually in Kansas in the U.S., maybe even as early as January of 1918. And some epidemiologists have traced the spread of the virus uh, sort of through Kansas, um, to, through Army training facilities, and then uh, to the east coast of the U.S., and then as soldiers were being deployed abroad or overseas to Europe. Others think that it may have started um, at army bases in either France or England. Uh, some people have said it maybe started in New York. And there are a couple of papers that suggest it started in China. It, you know, it does seem like it should be really easy to pin down where exactly everything started. You know, it, it wasn't hard to pin down exactly where this current coronavirus pandemic started. And there are probably many reasons for this. And I would imagine, um, you know, it's partly because this happened during World War One, And so at this time, there was, you know, this unprecedented movement of humans just around the world. And at the time, there weren't strict epidemiological practices like contact tracing that are being done today. So if someone moved across the ocean and they were sick, like that, you know, that's it. That was the spread and there might never be any way of con or figuring out what happened there. And another reason was because, um, you know, this is in the early 1900s before the invention of antibiotics. So it was much more common for people to die of infectious disease, especially like tuberculosis. And so there were outbreaks of respiratory disease all over the place. So, you know, how do you figure out which is the first one when they can all kind of look the same? Yeah, that is a great point. Uh, and it, it really kind of shows you how... Um, at a time of mass mobilization, how anything can spread so fast and it can just get out of hand um, almost instantaneously. We've kind of nailed down the world that the great influenza inherited. Now, let's talk about the influenza itself. What were the symptoms of it? Yeah, and this is where I want, like, I want to say this is where things get interesting, but it's also where things get terrible. It gets interesting from a sort of biological, scientific point of view. Um, but so the symptoms of this particular virus really varied. Um, it could be just like a mire, mild, you know, respiratory problem, kind of like a cold at one end of the spectrum to this just vicious pneumonia that was so awful that people didn't even think it was influenza at first. So what would happen is, you know, people's tissues, you know, their, their mucous membranes in their nose and in their, you know, their throats and then their airways would just hemorrhage and they would just fill with blood and fluid. And so people would be, you know, actually there are accounts of people, you know, bleeding from the nose, actually even bleeding in their eyes. And there'd be so much fluid in their airways that their skin, their faces would actually turn blue because they wouldn't be getting enough oxygen. And so it could be, I mean, that's a really terrifying thing, especially since uh, there are numerous accounts of this being very, very quick. There are, many stories of, you know, healthy young adults being fine, and 24 hours later, they're lying in a hospital bed blue and, like, bleeding from their nose. So it, this was scary. That does sound very horrifying. The Great Influenza targeted, it had a different target than your normal seasonal influenza. Is that right? 
It did, yes. And this is still where things start to get you know interesting from a scientific point of view. So um, your normal seasonal epidemics of influenza normally, and you know, we know this. I think people know this even without realizing it. it mostly will impact sort of, you know, infants who don't have good immunity and the elderly, you know, again, people who are probably immunocompromised. Um, the 1918 pandemic did impact both of those groups. So uh, very young children and the elderly were main targets. But there was this weird phenomenon that happened where young adults between the ages of 20 to 40 were dying at almost 20 times the normal amount compared to pre-pandemic years. And so and that's one of these things, you know, where, you know, young adults, they should have the strongest immune systems. They should be the healthiest. But for some reason, they are dying in these unprecedented numbers. We don't really know why, even now. Yeah, you mentioned earlier uh, about about how at the time of the uh, at the time of the outbreak that America was very segregated. What mm-hmm. what role did segregation play during the pandemic? This is a, a really good question. Um, I don't know that anyone has looked at this strictly in terms of segregation. There are numerous uh, people who have looked at you know quote unquote racial differences in who was getting sick. Um, and some of them are very, you know, it's, a lot of them aren't incredibly conclusive, um, but I remember reading one where, so one of the things I think I didn't mention yet was that there were multiple waves of this pandemic. So there was, uh, the first wave or what's called a herald wave happened in, uh, spring and early summer of 1918. And then there was this later nasty wave in the fall. And this first herald wave was much more mild. A lot of people got sick, but very few people died. And there is some evidence to suggest that people who were infected in this first wave had some degree of immunity in the second wave. I have a huge amount of data on this, but there is some to suggest that. And so one of the papers I read that was really cool was looking at the data, and it seems that... I guess I'm going to use the term African-American, even though they, I'm not sure they would have been called that at the time, were because of institutional violence, because of segregation. You know, they were living in worse conditions than white individuals were more likely to get sick. They were more likely to be infected by this first wave of the virus. So more of the more African-Americans had this virus for the first wave and less white people got it in the first wave. But because they had some immunity, it's more white individuals actually died in the second wave than um, African-American individuals. So that's one idea that's that's out there that's really potentially interesting. So you mentioned the waves of the pan, uh, of the flu and how they came and went and then came again. Can you uh, go into that a little bit more for us? Of course. Yeah, this is uh, another one of the really interesting things that was about this whole pandemic was that, you know, there were, in some places, two, maybe in some places, three or even four waves that happened of people, you know, getting sick and then lots of people dying and then people getting better again. And in many places, this sort of interwave periods were so weirdly short. They could be even, you know, a few weeks or a month. So the first wave, you know, cleared up very suddenly. 
which really should only happen if the virus ran out of susceptible hosts, right? You know, everybody who could get sick got sick and then got better. The virus couldn't infect anybody more. But then, you know, just a few weeks later, people got sick again. So if there was this lack of hosts, how could there be another explosion of infection just a few weeks later? So viruses mutate very quickly, um, but, you know, we don't think that they can mutate that quickly, you know, to make a flu virus, um, you know, to which the immune system would be completely susceptible to again. That's really weird. And we don't, we don't really have a great answer to that yet. That's very interesting. Do you think we could see um, uh, a series of waves like that with the coronavirus? In all honesty, it is one of my my great fears. I'm hoping that this is just a case of having having too much knowledge. Um, one of the reasons why I don't know that this would happen is because um, the influenza virus mutates much more quickly than the coronavirus. And so at the moment, everybody thinks that a person who is infected now should be immune, you know, still in January. The reason that we might see multiple waves is would not be due to any inherent change in the virus or in human immunity, but if we, you know, release quarantine at the wrong time and everybody goes outside and, well, we've got a bunch of people that have been in their houses for a month and haven't been infected and, well, guess what, you're, you're going to get infected if you go out before we're ready. One of the public health initiatives, I guess you could call it a public health initiative, that always pops up, and even here now, what you call like a mass graves or plague pits, as some people call them. Um, what, do you, uh, what do you have to say about that? Yeah, this is uh, something that I've definitely been thinking about. And um, yes, I am a sort of trained bioarchaeologist, and so I deal with human skeletal remains. I spend a lot of time thinking about dead people and... It's been very interesting to see the reports from, you know, like Heart Island, New York, about that being opened up again and see everyone's reaction to what that is. Um, so during the Black Death in London, there are numerous, uh, you know, plague pits that were found. So one of the most famous is East Smithfield that was uh, uncovered in London a while ago. And there are you know, hundreds of bodies of individuals who died, you know, I think it was only a couple of years, that are from, you know, plague victims. So that's a really interesting thing. And, you know, when people first dug up, I think they were dug up the East Smithfield individuals, I think they were surprised how orderly they were. There was this assumption that during a time of pandemic, people would be panicking and afraid of all the dead bodies, but actually they were in nice, neat, orderly rows, um, suggesting an aspect, you know, as much respect as you could give at that time. There are, I think, I think it was two years ago, they found a mass burial of victims of the 1918 flu in Pennsylvania. I think they, they, maybe they started to erode out of a, they, this whole, this whole mass burial had been forgotten. It wasn't marked. And so there was a construction unit going on and they, managed to run into a bunch of remains and there are mass burials from the 1918 pandemic all over the world a lot of them are probably been forgotten and so yeah this is something that happens when there's an unprecedented number of deaths happening all at once you know it's sort of 
burying people in these mass graves is sort of a practical thing. You know, you have, you can't just leave dead bodies around. It's, um, in some way can be seen as disrespectful to just sort of leave them there as, you know, humans decompose. It's also can be a safety risk. And so we need to bury them as best we can in the ground. And hopefully some, when, when things come down, you can go back and reclaim your loved one. You said two years ago, we found this unmarked uh, mass grave in Pennsylvania from that mass grave or any of the other 1918 um, mass graves. Did we learn anything about the uh, pandemic from these mass graves? That's a great question because I know the the one that was unearthed in Pennsylvania a few years ago, um, they just left it. They decided that it was best to just keep those individuals there. They didn't want to rest- disturb them out of respect. Um, you know, if you go to any old cemeteries in the U.S., you, you might find a marker dedicated to victims of the flu. You might find a bunch of people who have their date of death as, you know, 1918. Um So actually, there are very few studies that have done anything learning about the 1918 pandemic from human remains. And that's actually what my dissertation is on. To the best of my knowledge, I'm the only one at the moment, or the first one as of yet, to investigate this pandemic using human skeletal remains. Very cool uh, dissertation uh, topic that you're writing on. (laughs) Thank you. No problem. Um, all right, so switching gears, zooming out a little bit to a little bit more modern day. Do you see anything with the the great pandemic of 1918 that we can uh, that kind of relates to what's going on now with the uh, coronavirus and the COVID-19? There's a lot that um, is very similar and very different. You know, it's it's interesting to look at just the statistics to see what types of people are more likely to get sick or more likely to die. You know, what is the reproductive rate? of these viruses, you know, what's the mortality rate? And so far, they are fairly, surprisingly similar. You know, the mortality rates are, yeah, very, very similar. Um, You know, they estimate that around um, 50 million people in the world died in 1918 from that pandemic. You know, so far, I think the last time I looked, it was you know, well over 150,000 deaths worldwide from the COVID-19. So there's been so many studies done looking, you know, comparing graphs, comparing everything, um, you know, and there's there's so much that we can learn from the 1918 pandemic to inform what we do today. I, I, I think, that, you know, that um, a lot of time people or society will undervalue like history and anthropology and things like that. And I'm hoping that now people are realizing that what we do is actually very important. We look at the past and it can have a measurable impact on today. Absolutely. And that's a great transition to my next question. Do you see any lessons that we can take from the 1918 pandemic and use today in modern time? Yeah, there are so many. Um, so, you know, just the impact of social distancing. So just like today, cities in 1918 practiced, um, you know, very rigorous quarantine measures. You know, they closed down schools, theaters, churches for very long times, uh, long periods of times. And many researchers have gone back and seen, you know, that you can compare cities that had very strict quarantine measures to cities that did not have strict quarantine measures. And we can see that cities that had strict quarantine measures had far fewer deaths 
and also rebounded economically much more quickly than uh, cities who did not, which I think is really important because everybody is very concerned, you know, reasonably concerned about the economy right now and keeping everything shut down. But if we look at the past, that economically the best thing to do is actually to keep everything closed. It seems counterintuitive, but... Beautiful. I think that was a great lesson, um, uh, especially now as politicians are trying to suggest that maybe we should open up the economy and go ahead and go back, you know, stop social distancing measures, uh, and rather the more the scientific community is uh, pushing to, you know, no, let's keep with the social distancing measures for now. Um, I think it's a great lesson to take. All right. Well, Amanda, thank you for coming on the show. Where can people find you at? Uh, yeah, so you can find me on Twitter. My handle is at Amanda Whistler. And I also have a sort of research blog that I'm periodically working on, which is peopleandpandemics.com with uh, dashes in between. So people-and-pandemics, where I have not only a lot of information that I'm sharing from my dissertation. So actually, I think yesterday I just published or I just posted um, sort of a very large bibliography of academic resources about the 1918 flu in case you know there are any high schoolers undergrads grad students who are looking to start a project beautiful all right well amanda thank you for coming on the show All right, guys, hope you enjoyed the show. Make sure to go check out Amanda's blog and make sure to stay safe out there. Wash your hands. Make sure you are social distancing. Like J. Cole says, history repeats itself and that's just how it goes.